to Do Your Thing, an unapologetic celebration of every version of motherhood. I'm Tamsin Williamson, a life and mindset coach for mums, also known as the Parenthood Coach. And through this podcast, I'll be sharing some beautifully open, honest conversations with inspiring, passionate women who also happen to be mothers about how they loudly and proudly do their thing in life and motherhood in their own unique and authentic ways. Plus, I'll give you an insight into how I do my thing and what that means for me, my career and family. I hope these conversations inspire you to feel the freedom to do your thing and embrace your version of motherhood in a way that feels aligned, empowering and honours your whole self. This is your invitation to do your thing. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Do Your Thing, where I am talking to Cleo Wood, all about getting our mojos back as mums after kids. Cleo is a mum of two girls, a maternal health and sex positivity advocate, a journalist, a published author, and she is the founder of And Breathe, an award-winning wellbeing retreat company. Cleo experienced a traumatic birth with her first daughter and subsequently she suffered from postnatal depression, PTSD and pelvic floor issues, all of which led her to become deeply knowledgeable on postnatal and menopause health and sexual well-being and has ultimately driven her to champion these areas through her writing, speaking and getting her first book published, which is called Get Your Mojo Back sex, pleasure and intimacy after birth. Sex, pleasure and identity in motherhood are so often put right to the bottom of the list as mothers because we are always focusing on other things and other people. Plus, it is safe to say that we are suffocated by so many societal and emotional shame barriers around the topic that can really block our ability to share, connect with other people or ask for help in any of these areas. But through this conversation, Cleo shares why our pleasure and sexual well-being are in fact an intrinsic part of our overall health as mums, and how we absolutely do not have to resign ourselves to a sex life less ordinary after kids if we don't want to. After listening to this brilliant episode, if you would like to get your hands on Cleo's amazing book, aka The Bible on All Things Sex and Pleasure After Having Kids, you can grab a 10% off discount code from the show notes. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into the show. Enjoy. Hello, Cleo. Welcome to Do Your Thing. So nice to have you here. Hi, and so nice, so nice to be had, uh, if that's even a term I can use. <laughs> so, as you know, this podcast is called Do Your Thing, and it is very much about celebrating all of the unique and ownable and special ways that we are able to show up in life as women, as mothers, doing things in a way that feels bloody wonderful to ourselves in our own right. Um, Mm. And 
I would love to know, first of all, like if we were going to think about how you do your thing in your world, what does that look like for you right now? (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's a very good question because I do think quite often it's the ones who spend all of their time taking care of others who kind of fail to do that to its fullest extent in our own lives. And I'm sure you can kind of relate to that in the work that you do as well. So all that to say, I suppose, that it's up and down. And I think that is probably one of the most relatable conversations that I have with people is that, yes, I really value my self-care. I know the meaning of it and the importance of spending time on myself and focusing on my identity and my own pleasure and well-being. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. And it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily consistent with taking that time for myself and owning um, what I need to do in order to prioritize myself. I am in a very good phase at the moment. Um, Over the last few weeks, you know, since the new year, I was mentioning to you earlier, actually, that 2023 was a little bit tricky for me and, and, you know, some recovery from some, some events that happened earlier in the year actually took much longer than anticipated. And actually, it's only really in the last few months and particularly since January that I've really managed to take that time and space and, and put myself to the top of the to-do list, um, which I really hadn't been doing for a good year before that. So, It feels like I'm in a really lovely rhythm now. How long that will last for, I I don't know. Um, But I think that's the thing to just be really open and honest about here for your listeners is that it can feel really lovely at times. It can also feel really awful at times. And that's the rhythm of life. And that in, in, in accepting that, I think we can find ourselves in a much more kind of positive and, and feel like things are much more achievable. Um, so yeah, that that's me right now. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that resonates so much with me. And I think kind of this acceptance of the ebb and the flow of being able to show up for ourselves as humans. You know, this is actually sort of separate to being mothers, separate to being women. Although I think it can feel so much more um, acute for us potentially. But sort of knowing that sometimes when things get a bit wobbly or when maybe when the kind of connection to ourselves does start to maybe feel a little bit more fragile that it doesn't mean it's gone forever but actually you know sometimes we do just need different things and and trusting that we will kind of come back to ourselves so it's it's I think that's a really really important one it's like knowing (laughs) knowing what doing our thing looks like and feels like and knowing that actually even if it isn't there all the time it is still very much there and and within reach. And one of my um, good friends, Amanda, who's also a specialist pelvic um, health physiotherapist and contributor to my book and also to my own journey of recovery, she's amazing. Um, she talks about kind of the seasons of your your kind of life, your journey, your postpartum and motherhood phases, and you know, she she kind of says, well, look, this is my softer phase. This is where I'm not going to worry too much about, you know, how fit and well and healthy I am. If I need to just kind of get through and kind of model through to the other side, 
it might not be comfortable, but that's something that I kind of embrace for a little while in order to kind of get that headspace. And I totally agree with that because actually being kinder to ourselves around that should word, mm. you know, it's all very well having a uh, way of feeling better, you know, a kind of set of protocols that you want to follow. But if you don't have time for that and if you aren't achieving it, how not to feel guilty about that and how to accept that, I think, is a really big part of our overall mental health. Mm. And our mental health, obviously, is so intertwined with our physical health as well and how we are around our friends and family. Um, so I think that that just, you know, feeling a little bit more acceptance, being kinder, that, that, that real self-compassion, which is actually something that I find really hard, the self-compassion piece is a really big piece for me here and I think it, it probably is for a lot of people but we don't quite recognize that mm. um, and just kind of letting it go a little bit more not feeling so much that mum guilt because which is a kind of mm, two, two-sided two phrase isn't it because it's so real that mum guilt but I also feel quite angry that you know we don't talk about dad guilt do we? <laughs> we blooming well don't you are absolutely right and Maybe that is another whole conversation that I need to have with somebody who just inspired me. Because, yeah, you're right. It is just so unfair that this is mm. something that we're almost just conditioned to believe is a thing in our yeah. lives. You know, we kind of adopt it because that is, you know, that is almost given to us as part of our reality without even well, being asked. <laughs> absolutely. So, so motherhood in general as a traditional kind of stereotype is so much about giving it's about mm-hmm. giving it's about giving it's about giving to other people it's not about yourself it's about what you can provide for other people so that's where that mom guilt narrative fits in so nicely into that stereotype because it is supposed to be about what you can do for other people not what you can do for yourself and so where you know the guilt is just intertwined with that and you know fatherhood just doesn't have those same kind of cultural stereotypes attached to it Mm. which as you say there's a whole other big conversation we could have (laughs) absolutely and and I suppose in terms of this outlook that you now have and this kind of approach to living your life and embracing yourself what was there a catalyst in your life that kind of really sparked your interest that really kind of made this feel especially important for you to take this approach so such a good question because you know quite often people ask well well, how did you get to what you are doing now (laughs) and I'm like well it's been a long journey um (laughs) I suppose it did all start with the birth of my first first daughter. Uh, She's now nine. So I've been kind of doing this work for for a little while now. And it was a tricky birth. I had some birth trauma and mild PTSD after that. I found motherhood really hard, that entry to, to new motherhood, just to be the most difficult thing that I'd ever experienced. And I had severe postnatal depression. I had some pelvic floor issues, which led to painful sex. Um, and, you know, breastfeeding was really hard. I didn't know what she wanted. I just was expecting to walk into parenthood 
and for it to come naturally and for me to be able to succeed at it as I had done in all other areas of my life up until that point, more or less. And it just wasn't easy. Mm. And I guess my expectations were just so far removed from the reality of it. I just found that really difficult to come to terms with. And I was looking around and actually having these conversations with other women in real life and, and actually finding a lot of people were saying the same thing. But the traditional stereotype, again, of motherhood is all around this, you know, beautiful sleeping baby swaddled in, you know, lovely pastel colors in a beautiful nursery, particularly all on social media, because obviously we share only the best bits on social media. So, of course, that's that's what you're coming across. You know, there's nothing around the like vomit stained clothes or the punamis or the (laughs) of actually like washing yourself because the baby won't be put down and you know let down milk let down in a meeting you know so we're, all, I think we're it's having, all coming back it's to all coming back, oh god flashbacks uh, <laughs> so I think you know we are having those conversations a little bit more now there's lots lots more kind of honesty in motherhood in terms of like accounts on Instagram in terms of you know what we're talking about in terms of you know Netflix series all of those things um so, so I think in a way that has been progress and, and that's, I was kind of at the start of that wave having those conversations and that's why I started um, my uh, postnatal retreats because what I wanted was a space for support for women and their families because it is a family retreat. The dads come to, the babies come to. It's not just a mum and baby, baby thing because for me it's about that whole unit if you have one, not just about that, you know, in a way I think mum and baby stuff, fine, great, needed but it does put even more pressure on that relationship. It's like, okay, well, where's the dad in all of this as well? Mm. Um, sorry, slightly tangential, but that's, so that's where I started. And it's great to see that that conversation is still now happening a little bit more and we're kind of owning that imperfection of motherhood. However, I still don't think that the support networks are really there. I think it's all very well that we're talking about it, but how do you actually action the help and um the help that you need and how do we actually normalize it not being as easy as you think and and asking for that help because you know I just don't think that in the reality of new motherhood people find it that easy to to get their hands on the resources that are out there the few resources that are out there and you know, it really varies from region to region, from country to country, you know, even even in different parts of London, what's accessible to you, whether that's online or in person. And I just don't think that we have changed our perspective enough to really solidify and normalise the support that's needed and kind of embed it into our everyday you know, postnatal care, whether that's in the healthcare service or around that, you know, we talk about the concept of the village and how we need it and how it doesn't really exist. But what have we done about that? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where my journey started was was with my my firstborn. And it's continued since then through the retreats and through all of these conversations that I was having in the kind of anecdotal evidence and the experiences of, of the women that I was working with and the families I was working with. And so I became more and more vocal about it. 
uh, which led to my writing and to my book and, and, you know, get your mojo back, which came out about a year ago now, which is crazy. Mm. Um, and has been so helpful. I know for a lot of women, you know, I get some really lovely feedback on it, which is really nice. And, and just, I think having the space for people to be able to kind of, kind of admit that it's not as easy as it is. And, and actually, you know, talking about the lack of resources and support out there, you know, my book is very practical because it does signpost you to things. It does give you exercises that you can do as well as being kind of funny and relatable as well. Um, so I guess I'm trying to do both things. I'm trying to open up that conversation, but also then help to provide that support as well. I mean, it's not an easy topic of conversation of course you know this <laughs> in terms of your work as well yeah but it is you know at least we're kind of moving in the right direction I guess definitely it's such an important conversation and it is such important work and you know I think you know along with being able to facilitate those conversations I would imagine well I would imagine I know that there are so many barriers in the way blocking even the ability to have those conversations, whether it is shame, whether it is embarrassment, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are so many difficult emotions that get in the way of women being able to say, this is hard, you know, is this normal, you know, am I failing you know, is anybody else going through this as well? You know, so many complex emotions and thoughts and feelings that just get in the way of people even being able to like put their hand up and say, you know, I need help. So being able to break through some of that and, you know, be able to share your wisdom with people, be able to get feedback from people who are actually saying like, Yes, like this yeah. has really made a difference to me. I mean, massively celebrating you and the kind of role that you've played in that. Um, I think you make such a good point there about those kind of shame barriers, though, as well, because, you know, I was advocating for years for, you know, therapy and, you know, we should all ask for help and, you know, we should talk about our feelings and so on. And and that's great because, you know, we, we have World Mental Health Day now, we have Maternal Mental Health Week awareness and, you know, all of those things. It still took me five years to admit that I needed therapy myself and go to therapy. I'm like, well, well hang on a minute, if I can't do it and if I'm finding it hard, you know, what are other people finding? There is still... You know, it's all very, I think talking about something is one thing, actually doing, being able to do something about it is, a, is, is another. And there are other practical barriers in the way as well, like the cost, mm. you know. If you go and try to get referred from a GP, that might take a while, you might not get it. You know, the, the provision might not be great. Okay, so then what do you do? Well, you either wait or you don't have it mm. or you pay for it. And, you know, it might be a hundred quid a session and you might need, you know, eight months of sessions. <laughs> it's, it adds up. And, you know, and I'm in a privileged position that, you know, I have been able to do that when I've needed it, but not everyone is. Mm. And yeah, that, that I find really heartbreaking as well. Absolutely. And I think as mothers, going back to this idea of being such givers and like putting mm-hmm. ourselves last you know sort of investing in everybody else's happiness health well-being often before we then think about ourselves you know and this is something that I experience a lot with people who come to work with me you know it 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 feels like an indulgence 
it yeah. feels like if there is a choice to make, then we often, and I say we in a sort of in in bunny ears here, but we're the ones who have to kind of sacrifice ourselves at yeah. the expense of other people. But I think certainly as you and I know, when you do that and when you sacrifice what you really need or who you really are at the expense of everybody else, actually they do end up suffering in the process yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's such an interesting point, isn't it? Because I think, you know, again, we're sort of admitting that more and more these days, which is great, you know, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, how are you going to take care of everyone mm-hmm. else? And that's lovely. What about just taking care of yourself for the sake of ter- taking care of yourself as well? I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle that we're currently missing as well, is that actually, let's not let's admit that we need to take care of ourselves just for the sake of ourselves and our own happiness and our own well-being it doesn't need to be because it makes everyone else happier too mm-hmm. such a good point <laughs> such an important one and it is one that i think you know probably many of us just don't get to that stage because yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it takes so much time trying to do it you know to to benefit everybody else that you know we don't even get to that point yeah um absolutely. so so what i mean you said you know it took you five years to actually like start taking the steps to really sort of show up for yourself and for your needs what yeah. were the things that helped you break through those barriers or what did breaking through some of those barriers look look like for you yeah so i suppose so the the five years thing was a was kind of where it we hit rock bottom I suppose um and it was it was bad times for for (laughs) me and my husband and the family dynamic wasn't great I think so before that I think about the three-year mark postnatally I had kind of gone okay right now I do need to get some therapy here and I was seeing a personal therapist and, and some of that was working um the five year thing was when Basically, my husband and I were on the verge of divorce. It was, you know, he was talking about moving out. It just, what we, neither of us were happy. And obviously that was really impacting the whole family dynamic as well. So that was a real push because we both kind of realized that actually everything was going to turn on its head if we didn't do something about it. And, and that maybe that path would have been fine, but we needed to kind of sit down and go, actually what are we doing here is this worth saving uh and so that prompted couples therapy at the same time uh i had an ectopic pregnancy which uh was removed by emergency surgery and we hadn't we did we sort of had thought oh maybe you know before the divorce chats we had thought "Mm, okay maybe now we can think about having another child it was five years later it took me a really long time to get over all of the trauma of the first time round, and for ages we didn't Mm. think that we were going to have another kid after all um and we had kind of come to terms with that we had sort of been trying hadn't really been happening weren't expecting the ectopic pregnancy at all didn't even know that I was pregnant because Mm. my periods have always been you know irregular and so on and so it did kind of come out of the blue so the whole kind of divorce conversation coupled with this ectopic pregnancy drama 
actually, I think, although that was a really sad period in our life, it was the turning point in us realizing where we were, what we needed, why some of the things that we were doing weren't right and what we needed to do to change that as well. So I suppose those were the kind of prompts to Mm -hmm. go, okay, where are we all in this? (laughs) Who's happy? No one. Uh, what do we what do we need to do about this and obviously a lot of that work with was with us as a couple but that goes hand in hand with us making sure that we're happy as individuals as well mm. so I suppose that was the real kind of impetus for the kind of turning around and going no this is the time that we need to kind of take care of ourselves mentally and physically and as a couple and as a family mm-hmm. because gosh look at what we almost just lost um and you know and obviously we we did lose that potential life as well um but in a way it was kind of worth it because it it kind of brought us back together um and definitely helped us turn a corner I think Mm. yeah I mean and that is just so much to deal with right I mean it's just so (laughs) many layers there of things to navigate along the way you know so many emotional significant like almost like the real um pillars of your life like all kind of feeling wobbly at the same time and that that must have been really really scary so you know to have been able you know unfortunately sometimes hitting rock bottom is the (laughs) the place where you need to make that decision to say oh my god it's time like something really does have to give here um but being able to to do that and to kind of rescue yourself, rescue yourselves as a couple, yeah. as a family unit, you know, that is massively inspirational. Um, and and I really want to kind of touch on, you know, this subject of intimacy and and pleasure because, you know, I know that that is obviously a very much a specialist subject of yours and, <laughs> and, and going through, you know, the kind of, in the relationship uh trauma it sounds yeah. like that you guys went through as well being able to reclaim that component of your relationship um you know often it is one of the first things to go when a relationship yeah, start, starts to suffer um and and being able to reclaim that um how, how was that experience for you I mean, that was a real, it's really interesting that you kind of describe it like that as well, because I think that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily recognize that that component is, you know, a key part of your relationship. But I always say, you know, if you're not having sex, then you may as well just be housemates, Um, you know, really good co-parents, but like, where is your relationship here? (laughs) Um, And obviously there's so much more to intimacy than just penetrative sex, but we had a real issue because of the birth trauma and because of the pelvic floor issues I had. So um, I took a very long time to come to terms with the idea of my vagina as both a place where a baby would be pushed out of or had been pushed out of and a sexual object. Mm -hmm. And I think we don't really deal with that duality of motherhood very well in our society in our kind of cultural dialogue because we see very much the kind of sexy siren personality 
or that trope as very separate to the kind of giving motherhood Madonna trope and never the twain shall meet and actually there exists inside us both of those things because obviously you have to have had sex or you usually have had sex in order to become a mother but society doesn't allow us to treat those personalities or characteristics within the same person um I felt so I, I I don't know there's obviously you know what I had been indoctrinated with in terms of like how women are viewed the male gaze you know all of that kind of real 90s upbringing of like <laughs> you know body shame you know have sex but don't have sex you know you're a slut if you have sex but you're frigid if you don't all of those things I found really difficult and obviously had absorbed a lot into my kind of personal narrative around my own sexuality and so I really struggled postnatally to kind of come to terms with that on the other hand I really wanted to kind of get back to being normal in inverted commas so I was all like you know right I can have sex I can do this I can overachieve like I'm gonna have sex as soon as I can you know even though it didn't feel right I wasn't ready the baby was crying in the other room like it was all of these things that just were not adding up to a great so unsexy so unsexy I think I was even still bleeding like but I had been to my six-week checkup and obviously they'd been like oh great you know what contraception do you want and I've been like oh okay well that must mean it's fine to have sex like even though I wasn't really feeling like it um and so you know I cried my husband cried like the whole thing was a complete nightmare we then found out further along down the line I mean not for ages because I was passed from pillar to post you know from my GP to other healthcare professionals uh, without finding any answers but but I finally after a year realized having gone to see a pelvic health specialist you know a women's health physiotherapist that I have scarring internally both from my episiotomy but also internal grazing and my scars on my body happen to be hypersensitive like any scar that I've ever had has been really like sensitive for quite a long time they've been re- quite raised for a long time and that was true of the ones around my Um, vulva and vagina as well I also have a hypertonic pelvic floor which is a too tight pelvic floor so not very flexible you know and both of those things combined meant that sex was really painful because you know the the vagina was too tight and I had scarring and I didn't really want to be having sex because I just couldn't come to terms with the idea of it anyway (laughs) so all of those things led to a really horrible experience and so Mm. it took you know two or three years for us to be able to kind of have pleasurable sex again and I just was astounded that no I no one out there was like oh okay this could be a thing um this is something that you might struggle with you know the only topic, the, the only thing that I had been asked on this topic around postnatal sex was what contraception do you want to go back mm. on to? There was no, by the way, you might want to go and see a women's health physio or even how's your pelvic floor? Because all that we're, the majority of information that we're given around pregnancy and pelvic floor is around weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, and about incontinence and, you know, wetting yourself postnatally and all of that. Also, a very um, serious issue for some women, and something that we should be t- talking more about because most of us are not doing our pelvic floor exercises correctly, and we don't even know that. Um, but 
actually, I don't know if you know this, but some symptoms of a hypertonic pelvic floor can be the same as a two-week pelvic floor. So you can suffer incontinence with a hypertonic pelvic floor as well as you can with a lax pelvic floor. Um, So, you know, there are all of these different things that we are not told and even not given the resources to find out ourselves. Even if the GP had said to me, oh, you know, I can't refer you, but you should go and see a women's health physio when I had told him about the painful sex. You know, he was all like, oh, well, you maybe you've got an infection. So like sent me to get a swab and then that didn't show up anything. So they were like, oh, well, we'll do it again just in case, mm-hmm. you know. And it, between each of these appointments was like a few weeks because it's quite hard to get an appointment to do these sorts of things. And then I was referred to a gynecologist. That didn't help. And then I was referred to an internal ultrasound. That didn't help. And I went back to the gynecologist. And at that point, I think it was about nine or ten months in, the, she was the only person who actually touched the scars and I was like, oh, my God, that's incredibly painful. And she was like, oh, that's the problem. Okay, this is, a, this is te- you know, 9, 10, 11 months in. I've been talking to you about this since six weeks postnatally. <laughs> um, and no one has, has been able to kind of point out that this might be an issue or who I should ask for advice or here's the resource that you might want to read. Mm-hmm. And 83% of women experience painful sex or um sexual dysfunction postnatally wow that's a huge number that's huge that's taken those stats are taken three months post-birth if you look at the six months post-birth I think the figure is something like 64 percent still so it's not as if it's getting better quickly Mm. (laughs) it's not as if it's getting easier and it's not as if it's just you know five percent of people it's not as if it's you know this is the majority of women who are experiencing this and everyone is like oh well you know you're a mom that's how it is that's what makes me really angry and and it makes me really angry that the people that I should have been able to turn to for advice and information and referrals Mm -hmm. didn't know what the hell they were doing Mm. wow yeah I mean that is a that those percentages have literally blown my mind and (laughs) and then to to add insult to injury as a society we're all really closed not all we're not all really closed but the majority of people are probably really closed about talking about this kind of thing you know I mean you went to the doctor and said please let's try and figure this out let's try and make this better but I imagine there is also a huge number of women who probably feel very awkward and embarrassed and Mm -hmm. kind of like oh well I'm just going to have to suck this up to avoid yeah. the embarrassment of having to have these conversations, for example. So, yeah. you know, I imagine there are so many people probably who are listening right now who might really resonate with this. And and it's a snowball effect, right? Because also the longer that these problems are experienced, the longer that perhaps you're not being intimate with your partner or you're kind of dreading the idea mm-hmm. of having sex or being touched or you know, the the dread of your partner giving you the eyes and you being like, oh God, no. (laughs) You know. But but that snowball effect can have a really profound impact longer term, right? Because actually the longer that these things aren't happening or aren't being addressed or aren't being dealt with, the the bigger the elephant in the room gets, I suppose. 
Absolutely. And I think that is so true of so much around women's health as well. Mm. I quite often cite the example of, you know, leaving hospital after having a C-section. So my first birth was vaginal, my second was C-section. And, you know, no aftercare for either of them, firstly. But, you know, you leave the hospital, no one's told you about scar massage. No one's told you how to, like, take care of your c-section you know when you can do things you know how to take it easy whether or not you know you should go for a walk around the block all of those things I think I got a folder um and I did get a little bit of a debrief with my midwife but I know so many people who literally left hospital with nothing Mm -hmm. um and you know it's major abdominal surgery and I just think that for the cost of printing a leaflet with get some scar massage or like here's a link to a video which we really rate which just it can even be like a free video on youtube whatever like you know you would prevent so many more problems appearing later because if you do have an issue with your scar or your pelvic floor or whatever it might be post-birth you know if you can sort those things out you can prevent them causing issues further down the line like if you've got uh, a c-section scar that's causing you issues it's not just a question of appearance a scar can really impact your muscles and tissues and fascia all over your body and you know with it being a c-section scar it's really close to your pelvic floor maybe you're then you know maybe your pelvic floor is being pulled in all sorts of odd ways and you're not able to you know you may experience then incontinence further down the line or maybe you are experiencing painful sex and that's impacting your relationship just tell us what to do you know otherwise I'm going to be coming to you further down the line being like right so can I have some counseling can I have like surgery for this can I you know I'm going to be back in your office like Mm. all the time please just just tell us in the first place (laughs) right and and hopefully your book yeah is buy my book (laughs) but hopefully your book you know one of the reasons why I suppose it is so important is because actually you know, it is giving people that space to actually explore their options, to feel yeah. seen, to feel heard, to feel understood, to like access some of those resources or the knowledge, I suppose, that they need to actually yeah. realize that they don't have to put up with this stuff. Yeah. And I think what it is that is is kind of quite scary for a lot of people is that they don't really know where to start Mm. because it could be your scar that's causing your issue it could be some internal scarring that's causing your issue it could be your pelvic floor but is that a weakness or a tightness it could be some mental issues some birth trauma that you haven't really acknowledged it could be your kind of self-confidence around your body and actually unpicking all of those things can be quite a hard job on your own. Like one of the things that I was really adamant that I wanted to put in in the back of my book was a flow chart, mm. <laughs> which sounds really silly, but it basically is like, okay, is this, you know, are you experiencing this? Okay, no. Okay, so maybe it's not that. Maybe you should focus on trying to unpick this thing first. If it's not that, then maybe it's this. If it's not that, then maybe it's this. Because mm. quite often you're like, mm, I really don't want to have sex, but I'm not really sure why. You know, my libido's disappeared. And then sometimes, and then when I do have sex, actually it's really painful. But, you know, I don't really know why that is as well. And some of the easiest things that we can do, we don't know about because mm-hmm. we aren't told. And, you know, like lubrication, for example, a real problem for people in the po- in the postnatal period and also as we get older into the menopause no one's telling you about lube 
or which which lube to get, which is really important as well. Like it's really important to kind of know what's going into your vagina. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one is kind of normalizing that as a thing that, you know, we might need to do. It's just like, oh, well, you know, you're a mum, it's a bit dry, just try to relax. Well, no, like we can do stuff about this. Um, and I, I often refer to it almost as like a kind of ball of string or like a bit of knitting that's gone wrong and you kind of don't really know what to do. <laughs> The more you keep like trying to unpick it, the kind of knottier it gets. But mm. actually solving these really small issues around the outside, like just tick those off. Like, okay, got some dryness. Okay, try some lube. Oh, that helped. Okay, great. So now I can move on to the next thing. Or maybe that solved it completely. Like, so if you kind of try to unpick the little things first and solve all of the little issues, actually it might solve your overall bigger issue mm. much more quickly than you realize. But the thing that really got me and the reason I wrote the book in the first place is because I did not know what I did not know. Mm. I, you know, I talk to people about advocating for themselves, but how the fuck are we supposed to advocate for ourselves if we don't know what is normal mm. and what is to be expected and what is to be, you know, or, or, or what other solutions are out there? Because mm. no one is telling you, you know, everyone is dismissing our pain and our our kind of health issues because it's you know you're a mum now that's how it is and actually it's really hard to advocate for yourself if you don't know what you're supposed to be experiencing and and what help is out there yeah absolutely and 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 what you just said then about like what is normal you know actually normal will be very different for different people as well right and also common doesn't mean normal. Mm. So yeah, fine. It might be common, but that doesn't mean that we should have to put up with it. Mm. You know, there's, there's so many, there's so many kind of angles and kind of different nuances to this that are just really, mm. you know, enraging. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And I'm so conscious of how long we're talking for, but I've, already, I've there's like so much that I want to talk. So I'm just going to carry on for now. And I'm, um, <laughs> Hit, hit the double two speed on the listening if you want to speed things up. But I really want to talk to you about libido because mm. um, I think, you know, there's the physical uh, complications that you yep. talked about here that can have a massive impact on your Absolutely. desire for intimacy. But actually the libido piece, and this is something that I will say I've experienced myself as well, you know, this kind of fluctuating or really like at times low libido that so many Mm. women experience, particularly Mm -hmm. after having kids, perhaps, you know, perimenopause has a, Mm -hmm. plays a role in that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is something that I think people also just sort of sit back and say, oh, well, I'm just not a very sexual person, you know, oh, well, maybe that's just how our relationship is I'd love to get your kind of thoughts on that and you know the sorts of approaches that people can take to actually not just accept it but you know realize there's another way so I think the first thing to say is that it is entirely expected that our libido might be low in motherhood particularly as we're having kids later and, you know, some of the kind of perimenopause symptoms might be coming into play there as well. Because firstly, sleep deprivation and fatigue really contributes to low libido. Mm. If you're breastfeeding, uh, that can also have a real impact on low libido. If you are stressed, 
low libido, if you are suffering mental health issues, low libido. (laughs) What happens in new parenthood or later on into motherhood? You've probably got at least two or three of those things going on. And then that's not even to mention the mental load aspect Mm -hmm. and all of the things that we have to do within parenthood. So I think it's entirely understandable that our libido isn't how it is when, you know, we're in our teens or early 20s or late 20s. You know, there's a lot more going on for us as we age than than there is pre kids. And one of the things I think it's important to acknowledge is that it will go up and down and that's okay. If you want to get it back, you can. If you're kind of happy with this phase of like not having much sex and your partner is on board with that and you're both comfortable, then great. But there are things you can do about it. It doesn't necessarily have to mean the end of sex ever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to recognize that we are, it is okay for us to own our pleasure and for us to want to have more sex. I'm sure you've heard the jokes about, well, of course, we, we don't have sex, we're parents, like, you know, or, or like, well, you know, don't be silly once a month for us or like, you know, once a quarter or once a year on his birthday, you know, all of those things are very male centric because we're not supposed to want sex as women. Um, and I think it's really important to kind of say that if you do, it, that's okay and to kind of own that as well. Now, the one thing that I would say it's important to bear in mind is that as women, it quite often takes us quite a long time to get into that headspace to want to have sex. We can't necessarily turn it on. Uh, Sometimes our other halves might be able to do that. You know, that is a stereotype that we kind of hear around men. But for the most part, their brains are wired a little bit more differently we carry a lot of the mental load we're not necessarily in that kind of sexy headspace all of the time so it takes a while to transition for women in general we need to kind of feel the desire in our head before our body feels aroused so if we haven't made that transition which could take half an hour it could take an hour could take a whole day (laughs) then our body is not going to be aroused If our body's not really aroused, we're not really into the sex. We're not going to have a great time. We're not then going to want to have another great time. You know, we're not going to have to want, want, we're not going to want to have sex again that quickly afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. You know, there's no point, not no point, but, you know, it isn't that helpful to have bad sex because you're not then going to want to have more sex afterwards. Mm -hmm. So just bearing all of that in mind. (laughs) I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. I know, it is positive, positive, I promise. Um, Bearing all of that in mind, Esther Perel says, foreplay starts the moment that sex ends. So if you can be nicer to each other in between times, if you can share a bit of that mental load, if you can kind of give each other a little cheeky bum squeeze in the kitchen from time to time. Maybe you send each other a nice text or a sexy text or whatever you respond to best. If you maybe listen to some audio erotica individually, uh, if you take penetrative sex off the table and focus on the inverted commas foreplay bit for longer, if you just kiss, if you just, you know, 
you, you know, um, just kind of stay on the sofa and kind of cuddle for a while if you just give a blowjob and you don't, you know, or, or um, focus on some cunnilingus rather than actually going, oh, it needs to be penis and vagina sex for mm. it to count as sex. All of those things can really add up to kind of just have a little bit more sexual currency within the relationship that means that when it does come time to have sex, in inverted commas, traditionally, that you'll be a little bit more open to it. Mm -hmm. And just kind of setting aside some time sometimes can really help as well. Like I know it's not sexy scheduling in, you know, getting back in the sack. But sometimes as parents, that's what we need. Um, so, you know, there are things we can do about it. I can talk for days on this. And obviously, there's so many more bits of there are so many more nuggets in my book and kind of different aspects of this that you can explore mm. depending on what you're experiencing and what your particular circumstances. But there, there are ways to kind of revisit the libido obviously taking care of your health and well-being can really help because we started at the beginning talking about okay well if you're stressed if you're tired all of those things and the libido is going to take a, a significant dive so doing that first and then all of these little tips and tricks around okay what is your everyday uh routine looking like what is your relationship looking like are you actually cuddling are you kissing each other properly like and meaningfully each day because if you're not, then your body forgets what it's like to have mm. sex anyway and what it's like to feel that desire. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just kind of keeping in touch with it like that, but without the pressure of, of actual penetrative sex mm. can be a really key part of starting to revisit and revive and, and kind of reignite that libido. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like such valuable, like, advice if you know people listening are in that real rut when it comes to intimacy like you know the first things that you can start to try things that are really accessible and also it not being like this is the right or the wrong way but actually tuning into what feels good to mm. you what feels good in your relationship you know and and as with the you know all things relationship focus that having that conversation you know, that's something, certainly something that's made a massive difference, like particularly during phases when, you know, me and my husband haven't been having much sex, you know, but actually yeah. sometimes just talking about the fact that we're not having much sex and like discussing it and acknowledging yeah. it with each other as well. Like, you know, yeah. sometimes maybe we're not in that zone, but at least we're yeah. not pretending that it's not <laughs> not there. And, you know, talk, talk. on the same page, then maybe that's fine if mm. you're both super stressed because of work or if you know maybe you've had some family bereavement or you're trying to organize some big party for a family member whatever it might be maybe you just need to park it for a while mm. and if you if both of you know that then at least one is not going to be pouring at the other going mm. you know what <laughs> why don't you love me anymore like it you know if you're not on the same page it can make things a whole lot harder I think yeah mm. Definitely. And and one thing that I, I'm going to use just to kind of, you know, draw our conversation to a close, but actually mm. something that you shared with me ahead of our conversation, you said to me, pleasure and sexual well-being are an intrinsic part of our overall health. And mm. for me, that mindset shift 
of seeing it as part and parcel as our of of our overall physical health of our overall mental health you know actually our sexual well-being it's such an important component in that and yeah. with all of those things the more that you kind of pay attention to it that you nurture it that you give it time you know it will have this kind of ripple effect across other parts of our lives as well that's exactly what I was going to say. I, I do always refer to it as a ripple effect because, you know, if you've had an orgasm, you feel quite good, don't you? You know, if you feel good, you might be nicer to your other half. If you and your other half are getting on a little bit better, then you parent a little bit better because you're on the same team. And therefore, the kids know where they stand and, you know, and everyone is a little bit more content as a family unit. So, Whilst I very much believe that pleasure for pleasure's sake is really key as well, you can't ignore the fact that if you are having good intimacy and fulfilling intimacy in your relationship and you are focusing on kind of building up that trust and intimacy and, and, and sexual well-being, it is also better for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I I hear that. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> and on that note, we could chat forever on this, but I'm just going to say, if you want to know more, go and buy Cleo's book. <laughs> the Bible, the Bible on all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, Cleo, tell us if people want to, you know, hear more about these sorts of topics that you talk about mm. if people want to learn more from you or you know just just sort of stay connected to what's going on in your world where are the best places for people to connect with you uh so i am on the old instagram um at and breathe wellbeing um so to do come and give me a follow over there um i also have one-to-ones um so if you guys do not know where to start and you are really struggling you can book a session in with me. It's a bit like talking to a really knowledgeable friend or an agony aunt because most of the time <laughs> your friends might be helpful, but they don't know that much. So, <laughs> um, and uh, also, I also have some wonderful retreats. Um, I run uh, two retreats each year, a postnatal retreat with, with where you come and you bring your baby and your family um, and a menopause retreat. Um, and they are in June this year. You can find out more on the website andbreathewellbeing.com. Uh, and of course, my book, Get Your Mojo Back, Sex, Pleasure and Intimacy After Birth is out kind of everywhere now. You know, the big Amazon, Waterstones on my website, all the different places. So, yeah, come come and say hi. Amazing. Absolutely wonderful. It has been such a great conversation. Um, thank you so much. It's great to see you again. And um, oh, you too. Thank you yeah, for having me. No problem. Catch up with you really soon. <laughs> bye. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Do Your Thing. If you enjoyed what you heard, it would mean the absolute world if you could take a moment or two to do one or all of the following small things, which could make a mega difference to the success of this podcast. Follow and subscribe to Do Your Thing, which means you'll never miss an episode. Rate or review the podcast or share the podcast with a friend who you think would enjoy listening to. 
And if you'd like to continue the conversation or explore working with me on a deeper level, you can connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at The Parenthood Coach or join my email community, The Parenthood Retreat. Just go to theparenthoodcoach.co.uk forward slash newsletter. And remember, there's no right or wrong way to do life or parenthood. There's only your way. So get out there and do your thing unapologetically. See you next time.